0: Lord, that's our desire. Open our eyes, Lord. We want to see Jesus. Lord, You are the light of the world. And Lord, You give us understanding. You give us hope. You give us direction for life. Lord, without You, our lives would be a disaster. Lord, we thank You for Your grace, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Lord, I pray as we go to Your Word, that Lord, You would be our teacher. Lord, we don't want to hear the words of men that are of no value. Just the Word of God. And so we ask that your Holy Spirit would speak to every heart that is here. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Good to see you. Welcome to Calvary Chapel. Great to have you here. If you're new here, I hope you feel welcomed and loved. We're all a part of the body of Christ. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 11. Continuing our verse-by-verse study through the Old Testament. We will be in first, or 2 Timothy chapter 4 on Sunday. Lord willing, we will finish up the book of Second or the letter to Second Timothy. It's gonna kind of depend on how the rest of the day goes with the children's ministry. But uh, just to bring you up to speed on on First Samuel, again, remember that this is the book that follows chronologically right after the time of the judges. Everyone's doing what is right in their own eyes. There's corruption within the priesthood. Because of the corruption within the priesthood, Eli, Hophni, and, and Phineas all die. They, tried, they put their faith in the ark instead of the God of the ark. They took it out into battle. It was captured. In the midst of all of that, a woman by the name of Hannah dedicated her son to the Lord. His name was Samuel. He was risen up as the prophet in all of Israel. And as we've seen over the last few weeks, we're beginning the transition from Samuel the prophet to Saul the king. But remember that when they chose Saul to be king, they were rebelling against God. And God had warned them, if you cry out for a king, I'm your king, so if you cry out for a king, you want a worldly king like the rest of the nations, I'll give you a king, but you know what, here's what's going to happen, he's going to enslave your children, he's going to take your property from you, he's going to put you in bondage, and by the time you're done, you're going to be crying out to, to have him be removed as your king. And their response was, give us a king anyway. And this is so much like the world today, isn't it? God warns us that sin has consequences, and we say, I don't care, I want to do it anyway. And then we're shocked when sin has consequences. You know what, guys? God loves us, and He gives us His word for a reason. And He's not trying to keep us from fun, but to keep us from harm. He's a loving and gracious heavenly Father. We talked beginning last couple of weeks about this man Samuel, who really is an enigma in a lot of ways. But you know, first of all, from the world's perspective, this guy was it. You know, he was the good-looking guy. He was the Rico Suave of the day, right? He was taller than everybody else. It says more handsome than anyone. That includes the women. So he was a good-looking guy. He had a lot of character. He was a stud. He was yoked. He had it all, right? From the world's perspective. But if you'll remember that we saw in the last couple of weeks, he was not a man of character. He was a man who, you know, the Bible says man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. And we saw in the last couple of weeks that God, because in response to them, said, you want a king? I'll give you the kind of king you want. And then God, showing His grace, even gave that king would give that king some of the very things he would need to be successful. It's not like God said, "Okay, you know what? You want to flesh the king? Here you go." And then you know what? Let me just you can find out real quick how that's going to work out for you. He actually gave Saul every opportunity in the world to succeed, but he also had already said that he would not succeed. Now this is where people start to struggle with things. Wait a minute. Does that mean that God made him not succeed? No. Here's the answer. We know that, you know, he privately anointed him as king, and then he publicly proclaimed him as king. And remember when they made the public proclamation that Saul was hiding in the equipment? Remember that? Remember that he was a guy who was called by God. He was gifted by God. They even told him that the Lord's going to be with him, the Holy Spirit's going to be upon you. He gave him every gift in the world to succeed, but he was a man who didn't have much faith. And we're going to see, though, that in tonight's text, he's going to start out pretty well. And he's going to look like the man they've been wanting. Because they've always wanted a guy that they could look to instead of a God that they should should look to. And the sad part is that we see in this man's life that outwardly he had it all, but inwardly he had no character. God gives him every chance to succeed. So, when we look at this and we see in 1 Samuel chapter 8 that the Lord promises if you raise up a king, guess what? He's going to, he's going to cause you problems. And then later, we see that God gives him every chance to succeed and he fails... It's not because God said He would fail that He failed. God prophesied that He would. God prophesied that He would because God knew that He would. See, God knows the future. He knows all things. And some people think, well, if God says it's going to happen and it happened, that means He made it happen. No. God can know and we can still have free will all at the same time. Because God is in charge and God knows what's going to happen, but He doesn't make you do it. He lets you do it. Amen? Amen. So that's the God that we serve. And I want us to see tonight that we're going to look at this guy Saul. And if if the... book of first Samuel ended with tonight's chapter we would say that Saul he's a good guy because you know what he's going to look really good tonight and we're going to see some examples in him that we should follow but I want to make sure that I make it very clear that while we might follow his example in tonight's text we don't want to follow him much past this chapter because this is kind of where it starts sliding straight downhill chapter 11 just a, seems like a man of God this is why the Bible says lay hands on no man quickly People can fool you for a while. Somebody can look really godly for a while. This is another reason why you shouldn't get married too quick. Amen? Amen? Amen. You know what? You don't want to marry... Oh, we've known each other for six weeks, but we're in love. We're getting married. I'm like, dude, slow down. You're not love, you're in heat. Back off, Sparky, right? Here's the point. If it's God's will, it will last, and you need to take some time to get to know that person beyond the hood, you know, that thing, right? You need to get to know them and see them walk through some trials and some difficulty. And they're going to think, the children of Israel are going to think, you know what, this guy that we picked, see God, we were right. After chapter 11. See God, look, he's everything we ever could have wanted. And so again, we'll learn some things from this man. You know, because what we saw last week, the Holy Spirit was promised to be upon him. That prophecy was fulfilled. He told them all these prophecies. Okay, Saul, just so you know that you're anointed, these are the three prophecies that are going to take place as soon as you leave here. And remember, they were very specific, if you were here last week. And everything that that God said would happen, happened. He's starting to go, man, I guess this is legit. I'm going to be king. Then he began to prophesy, if you remember. And then the Spirit of God came upon him. And then he hid in the equipment. And then God made him king. And then it ended that God put around him some godly men to walk with him. God didn't say, okay, Saul, go do it on your own. He put godly men around him. He put the Spirit of God upon him. He had Samuel walking with him. He had every opportunity in the world to walk in faithfulness before God. But guys, let me say this to us. Nobody's had a greater opportunity to walk in faithfulness before God than the people in this room. You know what? We've got the completed revelation. We've got the Word of God. The Holy Spirit lives inside of us 24-7. And the only reason we're not walking with God is because we choose not to. We just say, you know what, Lord, I'm too busy for you right now. Lord, I don't have time for you right now. Lord, I have other things in my life that are going to be the priority. So believe it or not, tonight's chapter, we're going to learn a little bit from Saul's responses. But again, please, don't make the mistake of following Saul after chapter 11, because it's not good. All right? Now, let's take a look, and let me give you the overview, because a major threat's going to be made Against the people that Saul holds dear. And in the midst of that, we're going to see that Saul is going to respond in a godly way. And he's going to respond in a godly way because the Holy Spirit is upon him. Now let me just clarify this before we look at the text because I think it's important. Back in those days, the Holy Spirit is not like the Holy Spirit is today. The Holy Spirit is the same person then that he was today. But in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was given for a specific task. But the Holy Spirit could be removed when man was in rebellion. Remember David said in the Psalms, you know, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. But for us today, the Holy Spirit never leaves. He wants He's in us, He's in us. But now the good news is the Bible also says He can be upon us. And we do leak and sometimes we need to be refreshed in the Spirit, but He's never gone completely, which is what will happen in the life of of Saul. So we're going to see Saul as he's confronted with his first kingly task, and as we do, we're going to see some important lessons. That it's not just how we start, it's how we finish, you guys. And I'm, aren't you glad it's not how you start, because some of us didn't start too well. Amen. Amen? started really bad. Praise God that we get mulligans from God, right? He says, okay, you know what, we'll just, we'll just forget about all that and start over from here. You know, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. Amen? You sliced it in the woods, mulligan. You get back on the tee, God says, I love you, and I'm going to let it start all over. What a great and awesome God we serve, amen? Now, Saul's life is going to look, again, really good, and we need to follow these examples we'll see in tonight's text. So, if you're a note taker, and again, it's going to be similar to the subtitle as last week's message because it's still the same theme, but I titled the message, Starting Well, Responding in Faithful Obedience to God's Calling Upon Your Life. So how do we do that? How do we respond to God's calling? How do we respond in faithful obedience to God's calling upon our life? Number one, as we'll see in tonight's text, by being sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit. You know, what you need to do to be sensitive to leading the Holy Spirit, you start off by being faithful right where you're called. Instead of waiting for God to show you something greater to do down the road, be faithful where you are right now until God shows you something greater to do down the road. Too often we're waiting for God to do something so we can start being used. God wants to use you right now. Amen? We get done here tonight. If you want to start being used by God, you can help put some chairs away. Right? And when we're here, we can do it, right? You can go and pray with somebody. You can encourage somebody in the Lord. You can put your arm around somebody who looks like they need some encouragement. So by being sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit, being faithful to serve in the practical things, and then listening for the Holy Spirit's prompting. Number two, along with being sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit, Faithfully responding to the Holy Spirit's leading so we need to be sensitive for when he speaks and then once he does speak We need to take action It's one thing to hear from God and it's another thing to do something about it You know how you really determine calling action follows If you're called something's gonna happen if you hear God's calling it's gonna produce an action And I'll talk about this more in depth when we get into the text But it's so true that depending on your calling you will see things differently you know, if a little boy came walking in the room right now and fell down and tripped and, you know, spilled a, uh, you know, a glass bottle on the ground and cut himself, you know, the person with the gift of helps would jump out of the chair and run over and start helping him. The, another person with the gift of exhortation would tell the boy, What are you doing running holding a bottle? Right? You know, so, I mean, you, know, you, just see, you would see all the gifts in action. And it all depends on the gift you've been given, how you see things. That's why people get frustrated when you're called and other people aren't. You get frustrated that they don't see things the way you do. Don't you get it? People are dying. You know, why, why aren't you doing something about the people in Somalia? Right? Now, we should all have a burden for them, but Carrie Wheeler has a greater burden than we do. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't be burdened and supportive of that. Amen? But she wants to go live there for the rest of her life. Now, if we don't go, does that mean that we're you know, in sin? No, it just means that maybe God has a different calling, but we should be burdened for them and be supportive of her. And the same is true, we've all got callings on our life, and if you're not being faithful in yours, then ministry is not happening the way it should. So how do we faithfully respond? We respond to the still, small voice with action. Again, not just hearing, but responding. And then by being a tool in the hand of the Master. And then finally, give God the glory. You know, when God calls you, and then you respond, and He brings fruit, who should get the glory? He should. But aren't people tempted to give the glory to you? You know, you you, you hear from the Lord, and then you respond in faithful obedience, and then God does a great work, and then people want to tell you how wonderful you are. And that's what's going to happen with Saul. So let's take a look beginning in verse 1, starting well, responding in faithful obedience to God's calling on your life by, by being sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit. And the first thing we're going to see is faithfully serving in the practical things. Before we get to that, though, let's set some background. Now look, it says there in verse 1 of chapter 11. Then, then, okay, after Saul had been anointed by Samuel and proclaimed as king, remember last chapter, they said, long live the king, long live the king. But there were also those who were questioning him. You know, why should this guy rule over us? Who are you? You can't save us. Some some despised him, some were praising him. God had anointed him, and now we come to... To verse 1, then Nahash the Ammonite came up and encamped against Jabesh Gilead. Now Nahash the Ammonite, now remember who the Ammonites were, they're descendants of Lot. Okay, remember Lot lived in Sodom and Gomorrah. And after Sodom and Gomorrah, God wiped it out because of its sexual perversion. God smoked it off the face of the earth. And once that happened, the only ones who escaped were Lot and his family. But his wife, if you remember, turned around. And what happened to her? She turned into a pillar of salt. So Lot then was away with his daughters. And his daughters thought there will be no one to help us father children. So they got their dad drunk. And they slept with their own father. And there were two tribes of people that came from that incest. The Ammonites and the Moabites. And both of them were enemies of Israel. So here we are, all these years later. And this guy Nahash... Of the Ammonites is one who is going to come against God's people now in Judges chapter 11 God had had warned them and something had happened between the Ammonites and the children of Israel if you remember Jephthah refused to heed the warning uh, uh, the children of Israel or the Ammonites did they were warned by them Jephthah came and said guys here's the deal we're coming through this area we want we mean you no harm God is the one who's given us the land we're coming through we just want you to let us pass through your property and the Ammonites said no how'd that work out for them not too good because what happened then is that God used the children of Israel and they attacked the Ammonites and beat them soundly so this could be one reason why Ammon is now coming back against Israel Because they were beat soundly back in Judges chapter 11. Now it says, this is some 90 years later. So again, people can look back and still want vengeance for what has happened 90 years earlier. But then it also says, encamped against Jabesh Gilead. Now if you remember them, so the Ammonites are mounting up. And this army had been building for some time in the region we know that. It's, uh, it says in First Samuel 12, it reveals that the fear of the Ammonites was one of the hidden reasons why the people were demanding for a king. So it was only a matter of time as they've been mounting up for some time, and because his armies were mounting up, this is why they would want a physical king. They're like, well, they got a big guy in front, we need a big guy in front. They got a guy that they all look to for leadership, we need a guy that we can look to for leadership. Now, the truth is, every time they've been obedient to God, they would wiped out their enemy, no problem. But now they want a man because everybody else has got a man. They want someone they can follow just like the world has someone to follow. So we see them in camping, and it says there, and when you saw that Nahash, the king of the children of Ammon, this is in 1 Samuel 12, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us. So they said, Give us a king, we want a king, because that army's over there, and we need someone on our side. Now, why, why are they mounting up against Jabesh Gilead? Why of all the people? Let's remind you quickly who Jabesh Gilead was. Now, they want their revenge factor for the previous defeat, but no doubt they saw that the people of Jabesh Gilead were vulnerable. If you guys have been here any length of time, remember that there were 12 tribes of Israel, but remember two and a half tribes camped outside the land of promise. One of those tribes was Manasseh. The people of Jabesh Gilead were a part of Manasseh. Why is that important? Because they thought... They were taking the easy way out, but not going into the land of promise. They said, hey, if we go into the land of promise, there's going to be giants over there. So we're going to stay just outside the land of promise, where it's really green already, and all the enemies seem to have been defeated, because we don't want to have to go over there and face some giants. You know what? There's some people in this room right now camping out just outside of God's highest. God's highest is to cross over into the fullness of all He has for us, The Jordan River is a type or a picture of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And we need not be satisfied with the Spirit in us, but want Him upon us. Amen? Amen. And we should say, Lord, I don't want to give you part of my life. I want to give you all of my life. And here's the truth. They decided not to go in because they didn't want to have to face the giants. And what happens instead? The Ammonites come from behind. They camped outside. And who's getting ready to get picked off? They are. Because they've isolated themselves from the rest of God's people. When you isolate yourself from other believers, you are wide open for the enemy's attack. Christianity is not for the Lone Ranger, amen? So Jabesh Gilead already had a lot of problems. They saw the easy way out, they camped outside of the land of promise, they didn't press in in the way that God wanted them to, and sadly, it got worse in Judges 22. If you remember in Judges 22, there was a Levite man who was traveling with his concubine, chapters 19 through 22. And he went, if you remember this, he went along the way and he stopped in the city of Gibeah. And in Gibeah, which is where the Benjamites live, which is the hometown of Saul. Remember that. He went into Gibeah and while he was there, what happened? All these people came and beat on his door and they wanted him to send out his concubine and the other man he was staying with to send out his virgin daughter so they could have sex with them. They also wanted the men to come out. So he opened the door and threw his concubine out and they literally raped her until she died. Gnarly stuff. It's in Judges. Now, at the end of that time, the Levite then took the concubine's body and cut it up into 12 pieces. You remember this? And sent out a bloody telegram. And sent it out to all the 12 tribes to get their attention. And when people saw it, they were stirred up and they came to bring vengeance against these men of Gibeah within the tribe of Benjamin. When they showed up, they said to the Benjamites, give us the men. And the Benjamites said, no, we're not going to. So what happened? The other 11 tribes wiped out the Benjamites, all but 600 men. Killed every man, woman, and child except for 600 who had fled up into the mountains. Now some time went by and they started to grieve for the Benjamites because, again, God's plan was that 12 tribes of Israel would all continue to exist. They started to grieve for them, but they said, we're not going to give them any of our, our wives or our daughters for wives, so we don't want to do that. So they said, how in the world are they going to continue to exist when they have no women to marry? Well, then they said, "Where is there anybody who didn't show up when we went to fight the Benjamites? And guess who didn't show up? Jabesh Gilead. Didn't show up. So they went in and they killed all the men and all of the... Uh, non-virgin women, killed them all, and they left the 400 women that were left, and they gave them to marry the 600 Benjamite men that were left. And more, more than likely, that's where Saul's ancestors are from. So they get married to each other. So Jabesh Gilead are people who camp outside of God's highest, and then when called by God and the rest of God's people to enter into a battle, they don't go. And now guess what? They think they're avoiding the battle, and all they're doing is putting themselves in the middle of it. Guys, if we're not being proactive for the kingdom of God and using our gifts for God's glory, all we're doing is opening ourselves up for the enemy. And we want to live lives that will impact eternity, don't we? And the way we do that is being proactive in the kingdom, not sitting back and hiding out, afraid of what might happen if we step out in faith. Lord, help us to step out, not to pull back. So, Nahash no doubt knew about all this stuff. So, If you're going to attack one group of people, you find the people that are weak, and you find the people that probably don't have a whole lot of friends. Isn't that what bullies do? Find the weak guy with no friends. So here's Jabesh Gilead. They're on the outskirts, outside of the land of Canaan. They're mounting up to fight them, and they look down and realize these are the guys who didn't stand up with the rest of the children of Israel, so they're left out here all alone, and we're going to mount up and intimidate them, and when we feel good and ready, we're going to go down there and wipe them out. Now, that's what is happening here, and this guy Nahash is a bad guy. And when, again, as I said, they opened themselves up to this guy because they isolated themselves. And look what it says the rest of that verse. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a covenant with us, and we will serve you. Jabesh, again, running from a fight. They're not fighting them. They're not trusting in God. They're not saying, okay, you know, God is for us. Who can be against us? Right? What they're doing instead is going, Well, uh, okay, you guys are bigger than us. What can we give you to leave us alone? We we, we just want to make a covenant with you. Guys, we should never make a covenant with the enemy. Nahash's name means serpent. Do you think there's any chance for that, right? He's a type or a picture of Satan. And doesn't Satan want to make a covenant with you? Satan wants to say, hey, come you know, hey, you know what, I'll, I'll hook you up, man. Just follow me a little bit. Just kind of go down my path. And really what he wants to do is destroy you. Or in this case, poke their eyes out. Come follow me. We'll make a covenant. All I'm asking is I get to poke your eyes out. This is what Satan does. Come and follow me. All I want to ask is I want to destroy your family. That's all. I want to have you have your destroy your marriage, have your kids that want nothing to do with you. I want to destroy your name and your testimony. I want to make you completely ineffective for the kingdom of God. That's all I want to do if you follow me. That's it. I can't destroy you because you've already given your life to the Lord. But I, I can make you so ineffective, and I can distract you, and I can do all these things, and that's what the enemy does. He wants to bring you harm, not bring you good. He's a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And Jabesh, again, is running away from the battle, and rather than turning to the Lord, he's trying to make friends with the world. Guys, we don't make friends with the world. The Bible says to be a friend of the world is to be an enemy of God. We don't make friends with the world. We love them, we pray for them, but our friend is Jesus. And he's the one we stand with. So they should have humbled themselves before the Lord instead of humbling themselves before the enemy. So what does the serpent ask for? Look what it says. And Nahas the Ammonite answered and said, On this condition I will make a covenant with you that I may put out all your right eyes. You thought I was kidding. You You want to make a covenant? Okay, here's the deal. We're going to poke all your right eyes out. Now, he says why. Why? He says, and bring a reproach on all of Israel. Here's what he wants to do. He wants to bring pain, suffering, torment, and humiliation. And is not that a picture or a type of Satan if you've ever seen it. He wants to bring pain and torment and suffering and humiliation. Now the right eye would humiliate them. It would show that they were unable to come against their enemy. They, were, they just couldn't fight at all. It would show they had no power, but it also would render them ineffective from ever fighting again. Because you need to understand, in those days, they would hold with their left hand, they would hold with their left hand their shield. And they would hold it up over their left up high enough to their left eye, and they would see with only their right eye, and they would fight with this side. And this shield would be up here. So if you poked out their right eye, they couldn't see when they were fighting, so they were no longer able to fight ever again. So what he was saying to them was, we're going to render you completely useless to ever be a warrior, to ever enter a battle, to ever be effective in any way, protecting your people, doing anything ever again, that's our covenant with you. That's what Satan wants to do. Render you ineffective, unable to have any fruit going forward, unable to protect, unable to, pre- to proclaim the truth, that's what he wants to do. To make us useless in the battle. Let me give you some examples between Satan and Nahash. Satan attacks us, but he cannot do anything against us without our agreement. He asks or requires our surrender. devil can't make you do anything. Nahash says, I'll make a covenant with you. Satan says, I'll make a covenant with you. There's only a covenant with Satan if you say okay. If you say, yeah, if Satan says, come and do this, come follow me. Come, you know, come with this adulterous woman. Come, you know, steal this money. Come take this drug. You know, the enemy is drawing you away, but he can't make you do it unless you volunteer to do so. With temptation, he makes a way of escape, amen? And he will try to draw you away. Satan wants us to serve him, and he will attempt to intimidate us into giving, it, giving in to him. Just like Nahash said, I'll make a covenant with you, I'll blind you, and then you'll have to serve me. Satan wants you to serve him. Satan wanted to be God, that's why he got thrown out of heaven. He still wants to be God. Here's the good news, he'll never be God. He's not close to God. He's nothing compared to God, amen? Amen. Yet he wants people to worship him as God and how foolish it is to do so. Satan wants to humiliate us and exalt himself over us. And you know what? Through humiliating one saint, he brings reproach on the kingdom of God. Just like he wants to bring a reproach against Israel, he wants to bring a reproach against the name of Christ by humiliating us and putting us in a position that brings harm to the name of the Lord. Guys, there's few things in the world that concern and grieve my heart more than the fact that I could do something to disqualify myself from ministry and in so doing, drag the name of our Savior through the mud. You pray for your... Pray for, please pray for me about that. Pray for... Because you, know you know what? The enemy would love nothing more than the most vocal of the Christians to fall because that brings the greatest harm to the name of Christ. Amen? He wants every one of us to fall. But boy, if he can get Billy Graham, that would be sweet, Right? probably five demons assigned to Billy Graham. You know you need to take precautions ahead of time so that you don't fall for the traps of the enemy. Satan wants to take away our ability to effectively fight against him. He wants just like he wants with these guys, remove the ability to ever fight against him and then lastly, he wants to blind us. And if he can't blind us completely, he will try to blind us partially. He wants us to be blind to the fact that he's leading us in a path of destruction. Guys, this is why we need Christian fellowship. Because if we ever get off the palace, someone else who's seeing clearly will see it and hopefully love you enough to come up, put their arm around you and go, bro, do you see where you're headed? Please, if you ever see me, come tell me, please. Don't wait till I'm in the ditch, please, amen? Amen. Come and tell me, bro, what are you doing? Where are you headed? Faithful of the wounds of a friend, amen? need to love each other enough to speak the truth in love. Now look what it says, and this cracks me up. Then the elders of Jabesh said to him, Hold off for seven days, that we may send messengers to all the territory of Israel. And if there is no one to save us, we will come out to you. Now, first of all, this is not a bad idea, but telling the enemy that this is what you're going to do, I don't understand that. Could you wait like a week so we could try to get someone to come help us? And then if no one will come help us, then we'll let you poke our eyes out. Now, why in the world, first of all, why would you tell them what you wanted to do? Well, let us seek the Lord for I mean, don't tell them, but then they told them. And then what's interesting is that Nahash is so arrogant, you go, okay. (laughs) Take a week. You could have a year, bro. You were the one that didn't go and help Israel. They're not going to help you. That's why you're out here all by yourself. You camped outside the land. Look, we're getting you from behind, pal. We've been mounting up for a long time over here. Where's your help? Nobody's going to save you. Isn't that exactly what Satan does? He's the accuser of the brethren. He tells you that God's not going to show up, that God doesn't care about you. There's nobody here to save you. You've done way too much to ever be redeemed. Praise God that no matter what our past, God can still redeem our future. God can still take us away from whatever we've chosen to do and use us in a mighty and a powerful way going forward, and He can take the years the locusts have eaten, the Bible even says, and restore them. What a great God we serve, but the enemy loves to tell you, oh man, you've blown it, you've blown it too much now. God will never use you, forget it. You've already done it, you're past it. That's exactly what's happening here. You go take a week. Ask all the guys you want. What a picture, though, of God's grace as they're given an opportunity to be saved, to be redeemed. Jabesh had not responded to the cry when they fought against Benjamin, but now they're crying out for help themselves. This is interesting, though. Think about it. When people were crying for help, they didn't help, but now they're crying for help themselves. But isn't that a picture of the grace of God? We don't respond, maybe. Maybe we haven't ever responded, but now we're crying out, and God is such a great God. He doesn't go, well, what about when that person was asking you for help, you didn't help them? Sorry. That's not the God we serve. He still loves you. He's a God of love and grace and mercy. So here's Nahash. He's going to be arrogant. The serpent. He sees their past. is beyond redemption. Again, kind of a a very clear picture of Satan for us. And again, in desperation, they cry out for help. And Nahash, like Satan, was in for a rude awakening. Nahash thought, oh, no one will come save you. No one will ever come and save you. Satan thought no one would ever come and save us either. He thought he won a victory at Calvary. Guess what? It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. Amen? Amen. And Jesus rose from the dead, and it was the greatest defeat he ever had. Nahash, a picture of the same thing, thought no one will save you. No one's coming. Take a week. Go ahead. Find someone to come and save you. It's not going to happen. But praise God. What a picture of his grace we see here. Jabesh's deliverance would come by the hand of the king, and ours came by the hand of the king of kings. Amen? The hand of the king is going to deliver them, and the king of kings delivered us. So Nahash's self-confidence can result in his destruction, while Jabesh's desperation is going to result in their deliverance. Verse 4. Did I read all verse 3? No, verse 3. It says, Then the elders of Jabesh said, And we will come out to you. Verse 4. So the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul and told the news in the hearing of the people. And all the people lifted up their voices and wept. Now, remember, Gibeah was the city where what happened? Where that woman was raped to death. That was the city where all of Israel came against them. That's where Saul's from. And now they're coming. And their messengers are going around and they're telling everyone what is happening. And when they come to Gibeah, the news goes out and the people begin to weep for the people of Jabesh Gilead. Now, I want to say this. It's a blessing that the people are weeping. But you know what? It's a lot more of a blessing when the people do something about it. When we hear about somebody falling, it's one thing to weep for them and it's another thing to reach out to them. It's a one thing to say, oh, these people are dying and going to hell about Jesus. That's just so tragic. Let me weep. Again, we should pray. That's the first place, amen? And then we should put feet to our faith. Sometimes there's a time to stop praying and start doing. You know, we pray, 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 pray. Oh, I've been praying for 35 years about this. And again, prayer's good. And maybe that's what God's called you to do is nothing but pray. But for most of us, he wants us to pray that we might have greater boldness to put feet to our faith. And so they're weeping for them. But that's not going to help them much against the Ammonites. It doesn't say they're praying. It just says they're weeping. Now, I do find it interesting that the first king came out of Gibeah. And it says, and we know that's a very despised place. Where was Jesus? Where did Jesus grow up? Not where he's born. He was born in Bethlehem. Where did he grow up? In Nazareth. And what did they say? Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? So it's interesting that the first king came out of Gibeah, a despised and wicked city. And the king of kings came out of Nazareth, a despised and wicked city. There's nothing by chance in the Bible, guys. If we're paying attention, we won't miss it, all right? So they weep, but they do nothing. So too, Satan wants us to see and do the same. Weep over the plight of the lost, do nothing. Again, you know who does respond in such situations? Those who are called. Those who are called don't just weep. They may weep, and then they pray, and then they do something. Look at verse number five. Now there was Saul coming from behind the herd Coming behind the herd from the field. Now, I find this interesting. Because he's the king. He's been anointed king. They cried out, O king, live forever. And where do we find him? Farming. And you know what? I like that. Because you know what that tells me? He didn't get caught up in himself. At least not yet. Chapter 13 coming. Don't worry. But right now, he's not caught up in himself. What is he doing? He's been called by God, but he goes right back to doing the very thing he's supposed to be doing, and he's behind the plow, and he's just waiting to hear from God for more to do. Guys, while we're waiting for what God has for us next, let's be busy about what's right in front of us. Get up tomorrow and go to work and serve God while you're there. Amen? Go to work, be salt and light in the building, be the... Christ-like example in the way you do your job and look around and realize there's going to be opportunities in the workplace for God to use you. There's going to be opportunities when you're dropping your kids off for school or from your neighbors or whatever it might be. Just be busy about that, realizing God wants to use you right there. But at the same time, be listening for that still small voice for further instructions. Amen? For him to tell us more. So Saul comes up and he's down on the farm. God bless him. He wasn't sitting up on a hill contemplating his navel, right? He wasn't chanting or, oh, man, you know, I'm just waiting to hear from God. No, he was busy about God's work while he's waiting to hear from the Lord from the simple things he was called to do. And then look what it says. And Saul said, what troubles the people that they weep? And they told him the words of the men of Jabesh. So others hear the plight, they weep helplessly, then Saul hears the one hears the exact same words, but he doesn't weep, but has moved to action. Why is that? He's called. There's where you see calling, calling is seen in someone moving. May we not just weep, may we move to minister. Saul, king, faithfulness, day-to-day task, is listening for the prompting of the Holy Spirit, and he's about to hear it. Look at verse six. Then the spirit of God came upon Saul. Without the power of the Holy Spirit, we can do nothing. Amen? I've shared with you before, there was a guy named Guy Duffield, I think he was in his late 80s, who had a pastor's conference, years or men's conference years ago, and he got up and he spoke on the power of the Holy Spirit, and it was a great message in that I remember he had 50 illustrations, all about things he would rather do than try to minister without the power of the Holy Spirit. And that was just, you know, I'd rather walk through a dynamite factory carrying blowtorches than try to, you know. I'd rather, you know, be strapped to the ground in front of a steamroller being driven by a blind man than try to minister without the power of the Holy Spirit. And the point he kept driving home was, if you don't have the Holy Spirit empowering you, there's going to be no fruit. And so it's very important that you see before Saul is used by God, the Holy Spirit comes upon him. Now the Holy Spirit has come upon him to give him not an emotional high, not so he could bark in the spirit, but to equip Him to serve. Amen? Amen. Too often we think the Holy Spirit coming upon us is some emotional thing. And and again, I'm not saying that there aren't going to be emotions at times. But the point is, the true proof of the Holy Spirit coming upon you is power to witness. Holy Spirit upon you, a boldness in your walk, a greater passion for God, a greater burden for the lost. That's the sign of the Holy Spirit being upon you. And then it says this. And this is an interesting point. The Spirit of God came upon Saul, and when he heard this news, and his anger was greatly aroused. Now wait a minute. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, what's the fruit of the Holy Spirit? It's love and joy and peace and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. Against such there is no law. But he got angry. The Bible says be angry and sin not. But, and we, we, we better make sure we don't take this out of context. The Bible does speak of righteous anger. Did Jesus get angry? He got angry when they turned his father's house into a den of thieves. And he went over and turned over some tables, made a whip of cords, and drove them out. Now, that's righteous anger. But here's the difference between selfish anger and righteous anger. Selfish anger is always when I've been personally offended. Somebody offended me, so now I'm angry. That's not righteous anger. That's you being in sin. Amen? Amen? Righteous anger can come when this man filled with the Holy Spirit hears that these people have surrounded, these godless people have surrounded the people of Jabesh Gilead and they're going to poke their eyes out and force them to serve. Righteous anger comes when we see the way that Christians are persecuted around the world. Righteous anger comes when our government keeps turning its back away from God and calling it separation of church and state. Righteous anger comes when I see a Darwin fish on the back of someone's car. Amen? Amen? Amen. Righteous anger comes when I see people mocking the name of my Savior. Amen. Now, I should not respond in the same kind of anger when I've been offended, but it should move me to action. Amen? Amen. Start praying for those folks. Reaching out to them love. Minister to them but it should stir us up and move us to action. So here's Saul's anger is not out of a personal sense of hurt or offense, but out of a righteous concern for the cause of the Lord among his people. Calling revealed in action, and Saul's not going to just turn his back on and go back to farming and say, that's just too bad, too bad for them. That's a bummer. You know what? He's going to do something about it. So starting well, responding in faithful obedience to God's calling upon your life, by being sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit, faithfully serving in a practical way, and then listening for the Holy Spirit's prompting. We saw Saul serving in a practical way, he heard from the Lord, and now he's going to respond. And you know what? He's going to leave his farm to do it, and for some of us, God's going to have a calling upon our lives where we leave our jobs to go do it. Some people will be called half a world away, and we need to be available and say, Lord, whatever you want to do with my life, do it. Point number two, after being... Sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit is being faithfully responding to the Holy Spirit's leading. So now the Holy Spirit's leading, so now what are you going to do? Responding to that still small voice. Now look what it says here in verse 7. So he took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hands of messengers saying, Whoever does not go out with Saul and Samuel to battle, so it shall be done to his oxen. Now that's action. He took some oxen, he cut them up into small pieces, and then he sent out another bloody telegram, just like what happened to Gibeah before the concubine, and he sent it out and said, By the way, you don't show up, we're going to come cut up all your oxen. Now, here's something interesting. One of the reasons Nahash was so arrogant, Israel had no army. No army at this point. So guess what Saul's doing? He's rising up an army. How's he doing it? He's threatening them. You don't come, oxen dead. That's what's going to happen. And you know what? He's the king. And look what it says after that. And the fear of the Lord fell upon the people. Okay. Interesting note, it was Saul's ancestors who were guilty of the previous crime when the bloody telegram went out. And now here he is using that same form of, and this almost sounds like something a mobster would do, doesn't it? Here's a bloody, you know, calf, and if you don't, then we're going to kill all your calves, right? Sounds like something out of a mob movie. But this was Saul's, God's anointed king. The Spirit of God was upon him, and God was giving him wisdom to raise up an army. So Nahash is bold. He thinks they don't have an army. And look what happens. They're going to respond to this whole uh, thing with the ox. Look. It says, and they came out with one consent. So not only was there a fear of God, they came out and the word one consent means as one man. So everybody else is weeping, doing nothing. The word comes to Saul. He cuts up some oxen. He sends it out. He tells people to come. The fear of the Lord comes upon him and they come out as one to enlist in the army to go out and help these people in Jabesh Gilead. People, by the way, who I believe were up there thinking, no one's coming. We're going to try, but no one's going to come. And the same today as people think, beyond salvation. Let me encourage you. No, you're not. Verse 8. When he numbered them in Bezek, Bezek means lightning, the children of Israel were 300,000 and the men of Judah 30,000. Now that's an army. That ox thing really worked, man. <laughs> 330,000 guys showed up. That's an awesome thing. Look what it says in verse 9. And they said to the messengers who came, Thus you shall say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have help. Then the messengers came and reported it to the men of Jabesh, and they were glad. Yeah, I guess so. (laughs) Now, you're going to have help tomorrow. They were at this, what an incredible word of encouragement for those who felt helpless in the hands of the enemy. They felt like there was no way they were going to be saved. Tomorrow you will have help. You know what guys, you and I were lost, hopeless, helpless, and in the grip of the enemy who want to do nothing more than destroy us, and you and I, it's not tomorrow that we will have help, but the Bible says today is the day of salvation. We don't have to wait for tomorrow, you can know them today, amen? amen. Tomorrow you're going to have help. For us, today is the day of salvation, eternal victory over the enemy is available right here and right now. They were glad, we ought to be ecstatic, Amen? They were glad they were going to get temporal deliverance. We ought to be bouncing out of the room because we got eternal deliverance. Amen? I mean, we're going to heaven. It doesn't get any better than that. If one of you won $500 million in the lottery, I bet we would all know pretty quick. I bet you'd be pretty excited, wouldn't you? What's better? $500 million in the lottery are knowing Jesus Christ. There's no qu- if, you don't under- if you don't know the answer to that question, we should talk after church. Amen? But here's the point. The point is that we ought to be excited about who we are in Christ. And not a false excitement. But you know what? Truly, the fruit of the Holy Spirit is love and joy. Joy is not something that's based on our outward circumstances. It's based upon who we are on the inside. It's based upon an inward transformation by the Holy Spirit. And we ought to have great joy. Verse 10. Therefore, the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will come out to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. Now, this shows some faith on their part, because it's only actually been, according to historians, about three days of their week. So they actually have a week to wait. After three days, you know, Saul muscles up the, muscles up the army, runs some messengers ahead and says, By tomorrow, we'll be there. And they could have said nothing, but instead they went down and said, Okay, tomorrow we'll come out at noon. Now, that's faith that Saul and his guys are going to show up, right? Because if they don't show up, you're going to march down and get your eyes poked out. So that's really believing they're going to show up. Guys, that's called faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. They had not seen the army yet, but they believed they were coming. Guys, we haven't seen Jesus yet, but he's coming. And we need to believe it and live like we believe it. These guys are living like they believe it. We need to live like we believe it. Live every day in anticipation of a soon return. You know what they did, though? They're telling this. Why? Because they want him to relax a little bit. They want him to go home. You're coming down tomorrow? Cool. I guess we're not to sweat you. We didn't think you were getting anybody coming anyway, but tomorrow we're going to poke all your eyes out. Tell everybody tomorrow is eye-poking day. Let them all know. And they're go back to camp. Now, it reminds me again of Satan's false sense of victory after the crucifixion. They're sitting down there thinking they won the battle, just like Satan was sitting there after the crucifixion thinking he won the battle. But you know what? The next morning, things done changed. And you know what? The same is true here. The next morning, things are going to change. The second thing we see here is to be a tool in the hand of the Master, helping others to have victory. We need not only hear it and respond to it, but then we need to be a tool in the hand of the Master, ministering to others as well bringing them along as well, encouraging them to walk with the Lord as well. Look at verse 11. So it was on the next day that Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and killed the Ammonites until the heat of the day. Now what's interesting about this, this is a farmer who at least we know for a while was a donkey herder, right? He was out looking for donkeys, right, Remember? So this guy who looks for donkeys and farms, and now all of a sudden he's a military king. He's a king and a military leader who goes in and wins a great victory. This is not because he's a man of great military understanding. It's because he's a man who's filled with the spirit of the living God. See, God can do exceedingly abundantly above all we ask or think. He can use you in ways that you think are beyond you. Well, they are beyond you, but they're not beyond him. And he lives inside of you, amen? And so here's the point. You got this farmer donkey herder guy and he's going to go fight this battle. So he sends out some ox parts and lines up 330,000 guys and they march 17 miles all night long from Bezek all the way to to meet the Ammonites and they get there early in the morning and these guys are down there thinking it's eye poking day and they're not worried about anything. They're just kind of napping and they march right into the camp and slaughter them all. You know what? those who put their faith in their own might, judgment is going to come just as swiftly. Those who think that they're going to be fine, and hey, tomorrow, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm in control, and I'm in charge, and I'm greater than the world, and I'm greater than my enemy. No, you're not. They were wiped out. And why were they wiped out? Not because Saul was able, but because Saul was available. Amen? He was just available. And he was a tool in the hand of the Master. And he took this once proud enemy and wiped them out. So too our enemy was routed early in the morning. Amen? Early in the morning, they came into camp, and early in the morning, the guards are there, the stone is ripped out, rolled away, and they look in, and guess what? He's not there anymore. He's risen. I love that. Early morning. Early in the morning, they were wiped out. Early in the morning, our enemy was defeated. So starting well. Responding in faithful obedience to God's calling upon your life. Last point. Give God the glory for any resulting fruit. Keep the focus on Him, not on you. Look at verse 12. Then the people said to Samuel, I don't know if I read the last verse, said, And it happened that those who survived were scattered, so that not two of them were left together. You talk about wiping them out. The ones that were left were all by themselves. The few stragglers were running around by themselves. Then it says, Then the people said to Samuel, Who is he who said shall Saul reign over us, bring the men that we may put them to death. Now, in the previous chapter, when Saul was first recognized as king, there were those who said, who do you think you are? You can't save us. And they, they, they despised him, it said, and Saul held his tongue and said nothing against them. Now, Saul has won a mighty victory. He's got all the people on his side, and a few of them step up and want to honor Saul by saying, anybody who speaks against Saul should die. Now, if you're a real arrogant guy, you go, yeah, that, that sounds pretty good, actually. Speak against me, die. You know what I mean? I get rid of all my enemies that way. And you know what? I probably won't have any more either. Because if somebody speaks against me, dies, no one else speaking against me, right? And so if you're full of yourself, which you could you just won the battle, right? Saul, you're wonderful. Look, Saul, you did it. We told you. We knew you'd be the king. You're head and shoulders above everybody else. You're the good-looking guy. You led us into battle. You wiped them all out. See, God, we were right. Look, he's our guy. And Saul could have went, yeah, that's me. I'm the guy. But he's going to start off in humility. And look how he responds. Again, it would have been easy for him to let this go to his head. But it says, but Saul said, not a man shall be put to death this day. For today, the Lord has accomplished salvation in Israel. Amen. Amen, Saul. Why couldn't you hold on to that thought for a few more chapters? But here's the point. Saul says, I didn't do it. God did it. Amen. Guys, we never do anything of value. God did it. Amen? Amen. You should never be praised for anything. Amen. Well, I did catch the touchdown pass. So what? God gave you the ability to do so. Yeah. Well, I'm the one that came up with the thing at work that really propelled our company. Okay, and who gave you the ability to do that? Well, I'm the one that prayed with the guy and led him to the Lord. Who is the one that gave you the opportunity and the giftedness to be able to do that? God did. Who gets all the glory? God must get all of it. Amen? Amen? Saul shows grace to others just as the Lord showed grace to us, accomplishing salvation for us. Saul takes no credit for himself, but being filled with the Holy Spirit points all people to the Lord says, the Lord did it. We should never take any credit for our accomplishments. The Bible says, you know, this is a biblical concept for those in ministry. Touch not the money, touch not the women, touch not the glory. You know, God has to be good. God has been good to us. May we give Him all the glory. Any good came from God. Amen? Amen. And then we need to show the same kindness towards others that God has shown us. And so we see here, man, again, if you only read chapter 11, you go, "That Saul guy. He's pretty cool. (laughs) Kind of like him. Got to finish strong, though. Verse 14. Then Samuel (laughs) said to the people, come let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. So all the people went to Gilgal and they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal, there they made sacrifices of peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Now Paul had already been or Saul excuse me had already been privately anointed by Samuel, then he had been publicly recognized, and this is really his coronation as king, and many believe this is about a year after he first was anointed king and now they 're recognizing because they've seen not only that he's been anointed king, not only recognizes king, but now he's acting like the king. You know what? The same is true for us, guys. Sometimes there's a private conversion. And there might even be a public statement. But you know where the coronation really comes? We start living in such a way that people see Jesus in us. Amen? Amen. It's one thing to walk an aisle and pray a prayer. It's another thing to even be baptized, which we should do. But it's yet another thing that when people see us, they go, what is different about you? It's Jesus, that's what it is. And Saul, we see now, has gone from being a king in name to a king in actions. And we need to go from being Christians in name to Christians in actions, amen? We need to not just have people know that we're Christians because we got a Christian t-shirt. They should know we're Christians because they see Jesus in the way that we live, Amen? Now, the sad part about this, now I want to say a couple good things first about this guy. Because here, here, one of the things he does is the focus is still on God. Notice they make a sacrifice of a peace offering. So they gather together and they don't praise Saul. He says, no, praise God. So they make a sacrifice unto God. And then they rejoice together. And in a sense, it even could, that word there could be worshiping together. So they're praising God together. They're making sacrifices unto the Lord. The battle's been won, but God's getting all the glory. Here's the sad part. A few chapters from now, Saul's going to be back in this very same spot. And on this very same spot, he's going to build a monument unto himself. He's going to build a monument unto Saul. He's going to go from praising and worshiping God to building a monument unto himself. Guys, we are so close, every one of us, to doing that. We can take our eyes off of Jesus and start building monuments unto ourselves. I'm too busy to come to church because I've got to make a bunch of money because I've got to build that really big house, that monument, unto myself. Be careful where you invest your time. Amen? I'm not saying it's wrong to have a house. We need that. But, that, but let's make sure that we, don't, that we possess our possessions. They don't possess us. And they're not the priorities of our life. God's the priority. Amen? So, this is a picture to me of heaven, this last part. Because what are they doing? They're worshiping God together. And when we get to heaven, we're going to worship Him forever, aren't we? And it's going to be great. So, Saul started well. He didn't end well. He started in humility, but it's going to come crashing down in pride. Saul started well, but then his humility became pride. His desperation became self-confidence. Being led by the Spirit began to be led by the flesh. And Lord, help us to not only to start well, but to finish well. My dad and I say something to each other often. Finish strong. Finish strong. Amen? Amen? Maybe you've started poorly. Guess what? You can still finish strong. Amen? Yeah. So, got the, it's up on the board there. Starting while responding in faithful obedience to God's calling on your life by being sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit. Start serving right where you are, but be listening for that still, small voice. And then when the still, small voice does speak, when the Holy Spirit leads you to do something, don't wait for someone else to do it. You respond. That's a sign of someone who's called. Be a tool in the hand of your master. And then, when God calls you, and you respond, and there's fruit, point to him. Amen? Amen. Give him the glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We praise you for your word. We thank you for the exhortation in tonight's text. Lord, I pray that we would start well, but we would finish strong. Lord, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your mercy that you've shown toward all of us, Lord. Lord, I thank you that while the enemy was mounting up against us and we were hopeless and helpless, Lord, you delivered us. You saved us. Lord, we thank you that we've been forgiven. We thank you that the enemy no longer has any power over us. Lord, while he may try to get us to, to join in a covenant with him, our covenant's with you. Our promise comes from you. And help us, Lord, that when temptation comes to take the way of escape, to recognize the enemy for who he is. And Lord, help us to surround ourselves with brothers and sisters in Christ who will not only encourage us in our faith, but keep us accountable in our walk. So Lord, we love you, we praise you, we worship you. You are a great and an awesome God. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's stand and close the worship song.